Hey, Zero Block 30 listeners, you can find us every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Pride members can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Listen up, we've got some tea and you all are going to be obsessed. We spoke with the Abercrombie team and they told us that they were gonna launch a wedding shop. Well, we lost it because as you know, we are both getting ready to get Abercrombie and hitched. The whole vibe of Abercrombie these days is clothes you'd wear for a perfect long weekend and all their customers were like, hey, we spend long weekends traveling for weddings these days and then Abercrombie was like, we love that. Let us just give you everything you could ever possibly want and love to wear for all things wedding. So they did. It has everything. Tons of dresses, jumpsuits, pants, swimsuits, pajamas, pantsuits, and all perfectly curated for different events, bachelorettes, brunches, showers, ceremonies as a guest and ceremonies as a bride, reception, and even honeymoon. It is incredible. Check out the Abercrombie Wedding Shop on Abercrombie.com. Go shop it now. It's an anniversary edition for me of Zero Block 30. Ten years I'm celebrating with my beloved bride, and I'm glad to be spending part of that day with you all. I started the day with a big-time power move, went to Cracker Barrel, had a delicious spread of pancakes. The ham was a little salty, but everything else went down delicious. It's a lovely, lovely anniversary. I'll be spending the week at a nice little resort with my bride. And it feels good because after being in the military, 10 years, marriage is nothing to shake your fist at. It's a long time. No. It's a long fucking time. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Today's show, we got five rounds in the magazine. Round number one, military ball season is fast approaching. And with that comes the dreaded fundraisers to the lower the ticket prices. We asked you what your units voluntold you to do. And the answers did not disappoint because, my friends, they are terrible and they are abundant. Round number two, after 11 years with one of the worst looks in the military, sailors are not feeling blue about a big uniform change. They no longer have to wear those god-awful blueberry camouflage uniforms that look like complete bags of dicks round three cool a slap in the base not cool a slap in the face we take you down to coronado california where one navy seal slapped another so hard he put him in a motherfucking coma and round number four we're going to talk to brian wood mc now you might be wondering what the mc stands for it stands for military cross it's one of the highest awards for valor from the united kingdom this gentleman's story is legitimately unbelievable. It's a story that I've been telling you about for the last couple weeks or two weeks now where I said that this story is going to blow your absolute dick or vagina off. It will not disappoint. Brian Wood, MC, what an incredible interview that was. Round number five, a retired Army Lieutenant General and former superintendent of West Point is now the president at a known party school, the University of South Carolina, which is also the home of our beloved Kyle Carpenter. And this time, he's ready to fucking party. Just kidding. He wants you to get up early in the morning and PT with him. Are you going to do that if you're a student? And all of that is going to be brought to you by our good friends at Killcliff. Killcliff has changed the game in hydration. They have performance drinks that contain elite hydration benefits and are 100% all natural with a killer taste. They leading alternative to traditional sports drinks used by service members, Team USA athletes, world record holders, bloggers, podcasters, radio hosts, and soul crushers everywhere. They're sugar-free, they're keto-friendly, they're gluten-free, and they're the official partner of the Navy SEAL Foundation. Killcliff is fueling the American dream. Make sure you go get some of those by going to Killcliff.com. 
com slash ZBT. You're going to get a great deal. That great deal. What is it? Well, you're going to get 15% off and free shipping with the code zero blog at killcliff.com. That's 15% off with free shipping at killcliff.com with the promo code zero. And make sure that you know that they give a portion of all proceeds to the Navy SEAL Foundation. Let's start the show because it's going to be a big one. It's going to be delicious and you're going to love to slurp it down. Let's start it. I'm feeling spry. I'm feeling good. It's the first day that I've woke up in probably probably six months where I haven't had to like uncrust my eye with my fingers. That's no great. That's today. progress. Yeah, yeah I'm feeling good. good. I can actually read today too. Everything's yeah, clear. Clear. Are you eyeing a return to rucking pretty soon then? Yes, I will be back on the rucking game Tuesday. Will will be my first day back. I have the anniversary weekend this weekend. I get back, I think, late Sunday night, and then I'll be back in the grind. We'll be recording on Monday, Tuesday morning, back on the grind working out. Can't All wait. right, I'll, I'll, keep, yeah. I'll keep an eye out for that. Indeed. All right, I like how you try. Cons is wanting to do an eye joke at the beginning. He's forcing <laughs> it in there, even though I said I'm doing better. I'm shoehorning <laughs> it in there. You He's really not being are. A very good pupil, you know. <laughs> He's not. He's nice being right, kind of corny with it. Do you want me to stop? Yeah, his jokes are pretty cornea. Do you no, want me to stop? I don't. You stop whatever you want. You just need to be funny. You keep it going if you need to. Right. All right, Gunny. <laughs> Let's get started with the show. Round number one. What do we got, Catherine? Guys, it is military ball season. As we hit the fall, uh, I know the big one for the Marine Corps is the biggest one of all, but I feel like across the branches, there's all sorts of events that happen in the fall. Um, mm-hmm. And fundraisers. Yes. That is when you get suckered in. They suck when you're a kid having to go around selling, like, the popcorn. I was a Girl Scout selling those cookies. It's just a pain in the ass. Did you ever have to stand out in front of the supermarket and basically panhandle for money? Yes, and it's the worst feeling in the world. And who would have thought? The Girl Scout cookies sell themselves, though. Yeah, at this point, very, very easily. I just hated it. All I wanted to do was eat them. But basically, it's soul-crushing stuff, doing these fundraisers. And you never Mm -hmm. think you're going to get stuck doing it again as an adult, especially... As a badass Marine or someone in the military, not the case. Uh, Chaps, did you ever have to do fundraisers for your military balls to lower the ticket prices and stuff? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, we did car washes when I was in Okinawa. We actually did one in Okinawa because we worked in the munitions area that was also had pineapple farms. They would legitimately, quote, farm us out to the pineapple farms to go cut the pineapples off the fucking bushes. That sounds like it's actually kind of fun, though. But I mean, it's like free labor. It's so not right. It's crazy. It's not fun at all. Those things are prickly as hell. That's we had to do quite the experience. San Diego Bay, the speedboat races, they would have these cigarette boat races Mm -hmm. and everybody would pull their cars and their RVs right up to the water's edge. They made us run in PT gear in the sand, in this like thick ass sand with our Kevlars out pandering to people for money to put money in our Kevlars. And we had to, they made us do, uh, one, two, three, four. They made us like do the chants as we're oh running along. God. It was fucking soul crushing. Sounds terrible. The other thing we had to do, which in hindsight, super shady. One of our higher ups was friends with a mil- with a contractor who built barracks and stuff, who had like government mm-hmm. contracts. On the weekends, there would be a white van outside our barracks at like zero three thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. You better be up in that van and driving out to Twenty Nine Palms from Camp Pendleton. So you could help. We had hard hats, the dust masks, and we'd be cleaning up construction sites of 
government contracted barracks. That's wild to me. That is wild to <laughs> and me it was that like, they can make you guys go do that. And you got like $10 off your ball ticket if yeah. you did and it. Everybody <laughs> in the van knows that it's fucked up, but nobody right. can say anything. Right. You because really it's, can't it's like, no. do we suck it up and do this for eight to 10 hours or is Gunny going to be pissed at us for the next six months? Like right. it's one or the other. Right. So we asked, we reached out on social media at zero blog 30. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and check out our YouTube, by the way. By the uh, way. What? I don't remember ever having to do any of this stuff. Well, you're an shocker. officer, so you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Uh, but we reached out asking other people what common fundraisers were. And the most common answers we got were pulling security, concessions, garbage, and crowd control at pro sporting events. Um, our own social media guy, Kyle, at son of a gun with two N's, uh, we would get rented out to do Chargers games at Qualcomm Stadium. That stadium's a dump hole, by the way. Yeah, it is. Uh, we'd stand by the seats, and people would ask where their seats were, but we had no fucking clue. The Raiders-Chargers game was the worst. Had to buy our own uniforms and drive ourselves. So He had friends that verified this. With this one, this is kind of crazy to me for the Chargers to rent out Marines to do this sort of thing. Granted, security and ushers helping people to get their seats, it's not brain surgery. But I have to imagine there's some sort of training or protocol that has to be followed that you can't just have people coming in willy-nilly game day and have them do it effectively. Oh, yeah. he one, one Evident of, by what he said. One of Kyle's friends replied, yeah, some lady asked me where her seats were. I said, I have no idea. I don't work here. <laughs> <laughs> so she was shocked and looked at me and said, what do you do then? I quickly replied, I've been protecting America since 1775. That's a great response. Um, that is a great answer. Along a similar vein. <laughs> and he tweeted the picture of Gomer Pyle from Full just Metal staring. Jacket. Just staring into the distance. Just dead inside. At <laughs> Frenchyman3 said, got voluntold to work security at Lollapalooza in 2015. And this is, again, these are people doing this to just save a few bucks on ball tickets. Right. And they don't have a choice. Uh, so got voluntold to work security at Lollapalooza in 2015, checked fences outside the festival for 16 hours with Jesus. a single 15 minute break. The unit supposedly got 50 bucks per Marine. Oh, and we didn't get entry to the actual festival to see any performances. Oh, that's such a bummer. This makes me laugh because remember this year at Lollapalooza, all those kids stormed the fence. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if there was any Marines standing by. They were like, just like, yeah, it. go ahead. Whatever. Um, <laughs> Trash man uh, at JP5811 said, picking up trash at a NASCAR track in Richmond, Virginia. Yep. There- you know what? I guarantee you that was one of my Marines. Guarantee because 5811 is the MOS code for MPs. Yep. Richmond, Virginia. He probably got sent down from Quantico. Guarantee it's from my old unit because we established that when I was the company gunny that Going they would down go to down camp. to Richmond and clean up. Or they would go up to FedEx and clean up the tailgating lots after it was over. Help, help me understand this. Right. Where does the process start for this to happen, for someone to go to Richmond or, or to go up to one of these stadiums? Does someone reach out to your unit and say, hey, I need 100 bodies right damn now. What do you got for me? Well, it's usually just like kind of the good old boy network where like you as a staff NCO or a young officer know somebody from a different unit, like an adjacent unit. Like, hey, how did you guys get this nice ass ball? How did you guys afford to go to the Gaylord on in fucking Washington, D.C.? Okay. Like, oh, well, we got this hookup where on three game days a year we would send all the Marines up and they would clean and they give us a big chunk. We put that to renting out the ballroom and they're like, oh, shit. 
Do you have that dude's so number? The I want to do that. are like sipping their caviar. They're like, excellent. Yes, send them. <laughs> send those stupid. But fucks. the fucked up part is that you still, even if you're doing all that, the Marines are doing that. It's usually not the staff and COs and officers that are doing it. And if you are, it's in a supervisory role that the junior Marines are still paying like 50, 60 bucks for their ball. Like right, which is a lot, which is a lot for someone at that oh, yeah. rank. And guys, I'm not done. I still got a couple more mm-hmm. responses that made me laugh. Uh, at rap game, Dakota Fanning said, <laughs> great, great <laughs> handle, forcing us all to get jobs working in the kitchens at the U.S. Open and then making us donate our paychecks from the two weeks of work to the ball fund. These fucking kids had to work God, for two, two weeks, weeks and then donate their. Pay- also, the course was like three hours from Lejeune. And we had to get our own transportation there and pay for our own food. And we couldn't drink the whole time. So they had to get themselves there. Three hour Holy trip. Shit. So six hour round trip. Pay for their own gas, their own food, their own everything. I'm surprised they wouldn't allow even any workers get a little complimentary meal working also, in the kitchen. Here's the part that super sucks. As somebody who worked concessions down in Philadelphia before Barstool, the people that work concessions aren't doing it for fun. They need those fucking jobs. Right. So here yeah. they're sending, we're taking jobs away from people who really need those hours. Anyways, at KCC. I, I have a question about that one. Sure. At Barstool, you know, we're a quote-unquote normal company, right? And we have an ex- expense system. The military doesn't have an expense system. Why don't they have an oh, expense system? They clearly don't, but like why? <laughs> oh, you talk, oh, to like pay like for the ball for your gas? Well, no, not even that. Like you have to pay for your own gas. To get there for oh, a three-hour oh, trip and I back, once, that, you can't expense that. I once that? got sent on a tri- on a training trip, and because I used the wrong booking system, had to pay right, over a thousand dollars right, right, right. of my own money. The, the whole system was insane. So, Brandon, like, answer your question. We do have that, but it's very specific on what you can actually charge back to the government. And oftentimes, the higher ups don't even know how it works, so they don't tell the underlings how it works. So it's just kind of assumed. When you're at lower rank, you just like assume that's how things are, and you just pay for it yourself. Like you don't know any better. Yeah, I try. We tried to game the system one time in in school when we had to go to Fort Sill for training. So we're like, all right, instead of flying and letting them pay for flying, we'll drive our own vehicle and then we'll recoup because you get X amount of dollars for all the miles. Someone did the math wrong. And we ended up having to pay out of pocket for going to training in the summer. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. At KCCO, Fernie said. Pulling security escort shit for the Chargers football games and the House of Blues. Instead of paying us, the money went straight to the ball. So most of us would take tips from people to let them into better sections. I like that. This is, I have a take. I have a sports take. I bet the San Diego Chargers left San Diego just because they were tired of dealing with Marines. (laughs) They were like, we got to get the fuck out of San Diego. Oh, yeah. We need to have somebody else. We need to get some L.A. The Marines are taking bribes to move people to better seats (laughs) because they're so hard. It was probably whenever they moved from Charger Stadium up to L.A., they probably had Marines doing the working party. Put the lockers in the back of the truck, Marines. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. Uh, At Old Breed Bubba 3 said, making us chip in for platoon parties. And then they would never have the platoon parties. That's, so, that's demoralizing. Yeah. Like, hey, what happened to that platoon uh, party? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's happening. I have a couple more, but these are so good. I, I love reading them. This one's <laughs> let's, actually, just do one, let's just do one more. This one I actually really like. Um, had rifle qual in the middle of August, and our first sergeant brought a grill and a cooler of cold drinks to the field and sold us hamburgers and drinks. Sold enough that the ticket prices for our ball actually went down. See, uh, th- and then, that's good. Right. That's a good one. Last one. It's Mitchie said, I remember on two occasions that our first sergeant said, if you and your roommate pay 40 bucks, then you wouldn't have to field day that week, which is the full clean of your room. But your room inspection still needs to pass Friday. 
<laughs> so yeah. basically, like, pay 40 bucks for zero reason at all. Um, and, and the only other one was... That's inside the mind of leaders, too. Oh, like, yeah. you can't even let a room be dirty for a week. Right. Right. Like, for a week. It's crazy. The only other one was a bid to pie senior leaders in the face. Was it good one? That was T-Bart17 said that. I like that one. That one's fun. Yeah. Pay money. Get to hit your leader in the face with a pie. I can hear an old timer being like, I would my, back in my court never do something like that. I feel like but, I do remember something like that. Seeing yeah. something like that when I was in the army. So That's a good idea. Yeah. But just all of this, I, I didn't realize how prominent this was that people would just be voluntold to do all these things for outside sources from the military and then just ba- it, this is basically a racket this oh is my terrible God, for sure. such a racket oh whenever if you I, have like a legitimately good base general or something like that high level base leadership and they find out about this they shut it down oh right because right, you're not yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't make marines work or soldier sailor airman marine you can't make them two weeks in a kitchen <laughs> also I'm three hours uh, away from base that's outside of on their, on their off day no less the in the kitchen one blew me away too. Again, I love bragging the concessions lady. We had like there's food handling issues here. Right. There's like health concerns. There needs to be training. <laughs> right. Like this isn't stuff you could just shove random people off the street into yeah. and have them expect to do a great job. It's just I don't know. This is just really, really crazy, crazy to me that this continues to happen. All right, round number two, I'll set the scene, and just in case you don't know the uniform that we're talking about. So every other branch of service, whether it's the Army, the Air Force, or the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, they have camouflage that looks pretty traditional. Like that, if you're going to a Dick's Sporting Goods or you're going to Gander Mountain or something like that, you have those colors. It's the very traditional olive drab, coyote, and black mixed together in some type of pattern, whether it be digital, whether it be tiger, whether it be striped, or whether it be multi-cam. You have different patterns. The Navy, for some reason, about a decade ago, thought it would be a good idea to stand out with their camouflage, which I think is defeats the purpose a little bit. When I first saw the Navy's blue camouflage uniform, it looks exactly like the Marine Corps, just with colors of blue. So there's a dark like blue, there's a lighter blue. blue. Yeah, it's a bright, almost like a royal blue, and then they have like a, almost a Carolina blue mixed in, and then black, and it's all a digital pattern. When I first saw it, I thought it was a joke. Uniform. So did I. <laughs> Double takes. I remember them walking on base and being like, what the fuck is that? I saw a cor- It was a corpsman. I was like, what? Where did you come from? I thought that, because you know, like if you go to the Arctic, you'll have the Arctic uniform that is right. primarily white camouflage, like uh, Mark Wahlberg stands up in, when, in Shooter when mm-hmm. he's wearing that uniform. I saw that and I was like, where the fuck were you? Were you wearing blue? Like, and they're like, well, the it's a Navy uniform. The only way these would blend in, because they don't even match the ships. They no. stand out against the ships. Yeah, because the ships are Is if you fell into the water. And our, we, there was a rumor that If was, you are currently dying. <laughs> yeah, is if you're in the water already fucked. The rumor was that if they hit salt water, the uniforms would turn like neon hunter orange. Which is not true, but I believed that. For years, I right. believed. I was like, I guess that's why they have them. I don't know. But also, too. That would be awesome, though. Because yeah. imagine if you, I mean, your salt, your sweat is salty. So, right. like, you're sitting there working a hard detail. Neon orange pits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would not go well for me. But the other thing, too, like, why do you need to be camouflaged on a ship anyway? It's not like you're hiding those big ships, those big carriers. So, I don't know why there was. And the ships are gray. Like, have yeah. gray camouflage. But no, but like even why do you it. need camouflage to even blend into a ship is my point. You're never going to – there's no ships that are so uh, unassuming that you're going to miss it in the middle of the yeah. ocean. Well, thankfully, their long national nightmare is over thanks to J.D. Simpkins over at the Navy Times who let us all know 
that starting this past Tuesday, October 1st, sailors who are currently being forged by the sea will no longer have to blend in with it. After 11 perilous years of parading around looking like victims of an airplane toilet explosion, Great description. the Navy finally is saying sayonara to the Type 1 Navy working uniform, a.k.a. blueberries, a heinous half-nylon boondoggle that not only wasted hundreds of millions of dollars, but endangered the lives of everyone who donned. The accursed uniform. Can we, can we stop right there? I sure. got to give it to the the Navy Times again. This is two weeks in a row. Incredible blogging here yes, by the Navy incredible Times. Incredible writing. Yep. This right. Is like the, those descriptions you tying in. I think besides "voluntold," one of the more military descriptive words of heinous. That wasn't a word that I an adjective that I heard describe anything until I got into the military. Oh yeah, the, this guy is great, JD Simpkins. Um, and do you guys have any guesses why these blue uniforms? Because he says they endangered the lives of everyone. My why, guess, why were they dangerous? I mean, my guess would be, all right, if they fell in the water, we wouldn't be able to see them. But I right. don't think that's the actual reason. No, it's because uh, up until 2012, sailors didn't realize that a mere spark could turn them into blueberry flambe. That's right. <laughs> these uniforms were highly flammable. Not great when you're dealing with, uh, I don't know, military weapons, metal ships that sparks can happen on. Who knows? Uh, as the Navy Clothing and Textile Research Facility put it after testing, it will burn robustly until completely consumed. Just what you want to be wearing. Not, not great. So they knew this. For almost 11 years, they knew that these uniforms were like super flammable, and it took until 2019 to finally fully switch over. Uh, but yes, once they figured out they were super flammable, it took about three years to start swapping out for what looks suspiciously now like Marine Corps Digital Woodland camis. Um, beginning in October October 1st, 2017, sailors were given a full two years to purchase all new uniforms, and the Navy hiked up their annual clothing replacement allowances so they could purchase them. How many? They had two years. October 1st, 2017, hey, you got two years to switch over to buy these new regular-ass-looking uniforms. Who showed up October 2nd this week still in their fucking blueberries? Do you I think? would say a bunch. You think? Yeah, definitely. I would. Uh, I don't know. I think that that's something that they would talk about a lot. Just, but you did Maybe see. I guess. It, yeah. I guess no, because I. Kate, did you ever? Because the army, you wore the same uniform year round, right? Like you might yes. roll sleeves or not roll sleeves. Yes. But no, the Marine Corps during the winter time we would wear woodland camis, and during the summer times we would wear desert camis to be a and little then bit sleeves cooler. Up, sleeves down. Sleeves up, sleeves down. But whenever you used to switch from the woodlands to the deserts, or vice versa. There's always that onesies or twosies that show up to work in oh, the wrong yeah. uniform. Always fucked it up, right? Yeah, absolutely. I just have to, I never like the digital pattern on any mil, uh, any branch. Oh, I, service. Oh, I love I the Marine Corps one. Oh, I, I don't know. It. I thought it looked silly. I like new- I like the old the woodland. I camo. thought y'all shit that you can fucking take the rank off with the Velcro would look ridiculous. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> uh, but the navy, the new navy ones look badass. They look super cool because they look like Marines. That's right. why. What do they look uh, like now? The new Navy ones. Kind of like the Marine Corps Woodlands. They're just a little like a little more fuzzed out, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they look pretty cool. Um, But I do wish I could see. I know somewhere there was at least one. There was at least one who showed up to the line. You're looking across at everybody (laughs) all lined up. And there's that one asshole in the blue still. You know, I wish I could do now going back. I wish I could grab a bunch of Marines who are wearing their little desert camis that are kind of like a creamy white tan color. And then get a couple corpsmen, sprinkle it in, be like, all right, give me 15 Marines, go form a circle. 
Now I need a couple Corman go in the middle and make myself a little yogurt parfait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just mix them up a little bit, swirl them around. Yeah. Uh, but I will say, too, I feel like every few years this happens where, like, the blueberries from the beginning, how the fuck do you not test and see if a uniform's flammable? Yeah, they're spending pretty important. Well, yeah. hundreds of Here's- millions of dollars on these uniforms, and they fuck it. Every branch fucks this up all the time. Where a couple years later, after they spend tens and tens of millions, they're like, Whoops, the Marine Corps were that way originally too. That's why right. whenever we first went, like, I think it was like the first four years after being. In in Iraq, like if you went in a Humvee, you had to switch over to a flight suit because the digital pattern camis that they made were too flammable. Right. Wow. I actually I didn't know that, but my guess is that somewhere along the way, someone knew and they just didn't say anything because it would have costed too much money to fix the problem, or it would have made their higher up look bad, or there would have been so all these crazy ass. Every it happens all the time and always blows my mind that goes through so many people and still fuck it up. But hey, that's the military. It's our way. No doubt about it. All right, let's move on to round number three. Something else besides those Navy uniforms that was recently canceled is a little TV show. And no, not talking about NBC's The Code, Mm -hmm. rest in peace. We're talking about ABC's The Slap. No, that that no, that was that was 2014. I'm pretty sure that that was canceled. Are you sure? Uh, Hold on, let me check my notes. Oh, you know what? I'm being informed that we're not talking about ABC's The Slap. We're talking about Navy SEALs, the slap. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know about that What that was, but okay, go ahead. Go on. Right. Well, this one comes to us from the Navy Times as well, guys. They're crushing it this week. Big, heavy Navy week. Mm-hmm. Uh, this story is absolutely batshit crazy, by the way. The slap that nearly killed a prospective Navy SEAL happened at 10.09 a.m. on October 12th, 2017, in the Donnell classroom inside California's Naval Amphibious Base Coronado, 24 minutes after Bud's class 326 handed out uh, maps and compasses to students. Mm-hmm. So doing a little land nav, the instructor posted a land nav problem on the board and the prospective Navy SEAL started figuring out an eight digit grid solution. So uh, we all remember land nav, you sort and stuff. I sucked at it. I always fucked I, it up. I always enjoyed it. I always thought it was fun. And here it should be noted as they're sitting in this classroom and they're trying to figure it out. Navy officials say challenge bets among SEAL students kept classes fun and foster a competitive camaraderie. So if you get a wrong answer, instructors would sometimes make students drink dip spit, get their heads shaved, or forgo food until they left for training sometimes. So slightly harsher than your usual punishments. Mm -hmm. But the go-to bet in this particular classroom that day was a slap. So back to that land nav problem they're all trying to figure out. A 19-year-old student challenged a classmate who sat in front of him to deliver the right eight-digit grid square, Mm -hmm. and the challenged student fucked it up. He got it wrong. So while the other students continued their work, the pair strolled to the front of the classroom and mounted a small stage. The challenger stood a yard apart and cocked back an open palm. The other student put his hands behind his back, waiting for the slap, waiting for that. Like a good boy, face. like if you're doing a slap game, you got to go hands behind your back. Hands behind your back. Wait for that slap. Just shut your eyes and wait. It was a good slap, the instructor told investigators. I guess he caught him right on the button. That's right, because the slapped student stumbled. The sound of his head smacking the tiles of concrete echoed through the classroom enough to get everyone's attention. And the student's skull struck the stage with enough force that it made an audible noise. Oof. At first, he was completely passed out. People started running for medical help. At first, he seemed to respond to a sternum rub, but blood began pooling around him on the deck. 
By the time medical personnel arrived, he'd awakened but was combative and disoriented, and they had to pin his arms and get him into a backboard. So let's just be clear. It wasn't the slap that made him start bleeding from the air. He got st- he was stumbling around, and it reads like he fell and smacked his head. Well, they think the slap was so fucking hard, it like knocked, knocked him out. Equi- knocked and him then out. maybe knocked his equilibrium off? Right. So the senior medical official at the scene later told investigators she couldn't get a straight answer from the instructor. At first, he told her the guy was just talking and fell. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then that segued into something they were just horsing around. First responders rushed the slapped student to an ER in San Diego where they discovered he had a skull fracture and blood had oozed into the membrane between his bone and brain. Very serious. He was placed in a medically induced coma to control pressure caused by swelling of the brain tissue, which was pushing against his skull, threatening to suffocate his brain. The 29-year-old patient emerged from the coma two days later but could not remember the slap or anything about that day or the day before or the day before. Wow. It remains unclear whether the patient is still in the Navy or if it left him with permanent injuries. We don't know that yet. Um, but apparently the guy had no ill will for the guy who slapped him. Said, we were just training to become hard men. Uh, do you think that's part of training to become hard men? No, I don't. No? And, and that's and well, somewhere else. I mean, let's let's back up. Because you don't think that a slap. I bet that right. this has been done in steel school for fucking ever. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, that yeah. So, one time sure. that something comes out. And it is a freak accident. Like he tripped, hit himself the, the wrong way. Yeah. I don't think this is where... Like, we look at one incident, and obviously this is a horrific thing for somebody to be hospitalized and have blood coming out their ears and probably have, like, a brain injury that's going to last them the rest of their life. But that's that's been part of, like, SEAL and tough culture for fucking ever. I mean, Collins, you've said that you've had the type of bet going with your yeah. soldiers where you got yeah, slapped. Yeah, no, no, no. We did, we, did, we did slap bets in Iraq. We didn't yeah. do them on the face, though. We did them against the chest. My problem was... I agree. This is probably being – well, it even said it's been going on for a very long time. I don't have a problem with doing stuff like this. What I kind of took umbrage, though, in the article is the guy said it toughens people up. I don't think slap bets make you tough. No. Also, if you need slap bets to toughen you up, I don't think you belong in one of our elite training schools, right? You, you should be – Tough going well, into that. I don't, I don't think slap don't... bets toughen you up. I think it, it, it brings you together, as it said. It, it develops camaraderie. I don't think that makes you tough. I think you are... Drinking dip spit does, though. That's just disgusting. <laughs> and I don't think that that's what they're saying. I don't think that they're saying that this guy was a pussy, so he had to do no, a slap no, 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 bet no. to toughen up. But no, I, I, reading the article, and, and Kate didn't mention the part that I read yesterday, but the, the article said we one of the reasons we do slap bets and these challenge bets is to toughen people up. And I just don't think that's the right answer. I think most of these guys going in to SEAL training, to BUDS, to Army Rangers, to Air Force pararescues, you're already inherently tough. And these schools will teach you a little bit more about mental toughness and help you develop your resiliency. I don't think slap beds do that. I well, think I that's think just this group, stuff part of the culture. Is because you do have to sit. There's like a lot of physical training mm-hmm. to like seal, but there's also a lot of sitting in classrooms forever doing stuff like this. It makes it fun. Yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. That's more what it is, and it kind of motivates you to not get it wrong because you don't want to get slapped in the fucking face. Like I used I, to love it, dude. When we would do like in-service training, whenever we'd have different types of training, and one of the black belt instructor trainers were like, "Okay, you, you." Drop your blouses. You guys are going to go outside and you're going to roll for three minutes at a time. And so we would go outside. We would take off our tops and we the circle of Marines would like circle around you. And you legitimate grapple for yeah. three minutes. And that 
broke up the monotony of the day, like where you're still and you're used to getting in a physical confrontation because you could be as tough as you want. But I don't think that people just because they're a SEAL or they're a Ranger or they're a Marine or they're Airman, whoever, means that you've been in physical confrontations. You could be also tough right. and yeah. never been in a physical confrontation in your life. So exposing you to actually taking a punch or exposing you to actually tr- somebody's trying to choke you out, actively trying to choke you out and you getting out of it. I think yeah. there is some benefit whenever you're in a tough, rough environment. No, this you're though, you're right. No, no, you're right. And and those things you do need to know what that feels like to to roll around or to take a punch. The only thing I'm saying with this, and I don't have a problem with doing slap beds. All I'm saying is, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. Okay, don't tell me it's too toughen them up. Tell me it's because of what you just mentioned, chaps. Tell me it's because it develops camaraderie. I just don't like the thing that slap bets make you tough because I don't think that's what they do. I think it's uh, yeah. I, I just feel like it's a, overall just a shame this guy. It's, it's top, so it's top, such a freak accident. Top of his thing, and it's a shame that he lost it because that's fucking dumb. Take him outside to grapple. Yeah. That to me is safer than this. Like that's got fucking seals. But I would. Stage. I mean, if you ask me, like before it started, like if you ask anybody. Because they've done it hundreds of thousands of times, I would imagine, at SEAL school. Like, you're going to get slapped in the face. And, like, to get knocked out with a slap, it has to be one, Dude. somebody, like, one of those Russian mitts, like, yes. that comes at you. Yes. Or just an unbelievably hard slap. Or I just, just perfectly placed. Later down the line, this guy being like, yeah, you know, I, I was almost a Navy SEAL, dropped out. Well, what happened? That's got not. slapped, man. Yeah. <laughs> so like, how do you tell that people? That definitely sucks. It definitely sucks, sucks dude. I mean, you, and you oh. do a lot of times end up, especially now, you do make rules like that prohibit things like that because of the one time right. freak accident that something could happen. That's just the nature of Because you're right. Because how many slaps before this guy got hurt happened? Well, slap bets, slap bets are forbidden by regulations there. Um, and the, I'm sure drinking dip spit is too. <laughs> drinking dip spit and, and withholding food and that probably also is as well. Um, and the instructors are supposed to make sure stuff like that doesn't get out of hand if they're doing it, obviously. Um, but the Navy is saying this is a rogue SEAL instructor who let students get out of hand. So who I, knows? I bet the guy who slapped just feels like shit, man. Oh, yeah. Like, for yeah. sure. For 19 sure. years old, you're in SEAL training, you're amped the fuck up, you're going up there and you don't want to slap softly, so you go too far and next thing you know somebody's in the hospital i bet yeah. he feels like fucking shit man he I feels feel great but i did, guy too i i can understand how the other guy who got slapped said i don't harbor any ill yeah. will towards yeah that i wouldn't he was just doing what we've always been doing in seal training well when you, you put you your hands it. behind your back you're just goofing like it's a goof slap and next thing you know something bad terrible happens all right let's move on to round number four Round number four, this is the interview that I have been waiting for you to hear for a long time. This is Brian Wood, MC, a former Army British soldier. Here's his story. Now on the show, I'm privileged to have, I just finished up his book and it was unbelievable. We have Brian Wood, MC, joining us all the way from the UK. Brian, thanks for joining us on the show. No, thanks for having me. Real pleasure. So, no, when you were 22 years old, you are a young man. You joined even younger than that, right? 17? Is that, is that when you joined? 16 in nine months. It's so crazy that you guys can join so young. Is it, whenever you were like a little boy, is that something that you always wanted to do was, was to join the military? I'm from a really heavily uh, military family, if I'm honest. But it was not, I was destined to be a football player. Um, I was with Chelsea Football Club, which is a very big um, 
mm-hmm. Premier Football team in in the UK. And um, but for a number of different reasons, travelling was a real demand because my dad was serving at that point, and we just couldn't make training. So I left Chelsea, but then was picked up by Reading Football Club, which are a professional football club, and um, I just never filled out physically what they wanted. So they they cut me. They just decided to let me go. And um, my sort of knee-jerk reaction was, I want to do what my brother and my dad are doing, and that's serving and fighting for their country, and it's something that I want to do. And I felt a little bit left out as well around the dinner table. They were having these incredible conversations where I didn't understand, but I wanted to be involved in them conversations. And I just, yeah, I turned around one day and said, look, I'm going to go and join the military. And what year was that? That was 1998, right? Yeah. Wow. So not a whole lot is really going on in the world in 1998 military. September 11th happens. The UK being our strongest allies get involved with the war with us. At that time, you were how old? You you were about 20 at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 20. Yeah, I was 20. Yeah. So uh, are you thinking everything is going to change for you whenever that goes down? Well, I was actually representing the uh, the British Army football team at in Aldershot, where our headquarters is. And um, I was in the showers at the time when the first tower was hit and someone come running into the showers and said, hey, listen, uh, one of the twin towers has been hit. And I was like, what? So I got, got um, dried, got changed and went in. And we all, as a football team, was watching it live. And I phoned my wife up and told her what was happening. And um, there was some chat around the guys who, who were in that room because we were all serving and we all knew now the dynamics have shifted and we're going to go war fighting. We knew that. Especially me as an infantry soldier, I knew you know, that we were going to be punching the ground. And I also like, I want to point out to our listeners that you were 20 years old and you went and told your wife. So it's not just the U.S. military thing where soldiers get married really young. It's a, it's a British thing as well. I think that's great. So we constantly say that people get married in the military young for TRICARE and for love and for all these reasons. But for some reason, I think it's a universal thing that soldiers get married young. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, my my brother got married quite young, and, and my my dad got married um, very <laughs> young. And my mum and dad are still together, stronger now than ever. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, I can take out a leaf a, a leaf out of their book and continue my relationship with my wife. I mean, it hasn't all been easy. There's been a a lot of demand on my relationship, especially coming back. Um, and then I know we'll talk about the, the allegations that were made, but that really put a lot of pressure on our relationship and um, I but, yeah, so, I mean, we're, go on. let's, let's jump into your story so we can kind of set up those trials and tribulations that you went through. Tell us about the battle of Danny boy. Yeah. So this is my first tour of Iraq and um, it was 2004. And before we, so during our pre-deployment training, we were getting some Intel fed down that, Things had changed. The dynamics have shifted from peacekeeping. Um, McTarder Al Sada, who was the main militia leader uh, within our province, and basically dropped the ceasefire and said that all coalition forces are going to get smashed. And um, the last three weeks, this tempo be- became 
pretty violent and really kinetic. So mentally, we were ready for, for anything, really, because we were always training as a worst course, because we do in the military. And um, kind of, yeah, when we flew in to Bajra, we then kind of done a two-week acclimatisation period in Bajra. And then uh, there was a lot of casualties coming down from Alamara. Uh, from the light infantry who we were we were taking over, so we knew it was serious, and we knew it was it was punchy up there because of everything that we were getting told and the casualties that we were actually seeing come back. And um, I remember, yeah, flying into country up north, knew Alamara was pretty crazy at this time, and yeah, it was kind of the craziest handover takeover that I've ever been involved in because normally, as you know, when you go into areas, you, it's done in I would say slowish time that you know you get told by the other commanders where the vulnerable points are the vulnerable areas what's happening the pattern of life mm-hmm. there was none of this we were like fighting integrated so our first patrol we got in sort of you know dropped our bags and stuff off sorted ourselves out then we went on our first sort of mixed patrol ready to do the handover and I was fighting with people who I never knew like this this is a different regiment but they all understand our training practices. We're all doctrinally understand um, what we're doing tactically. So it was kind of I knew, but you know, different organisations have different sweet spots. They have right you know, and different responsibilities. If you're going yeah. to go in, like you have you have the same terminology, but somebody can do it just a little bit different than than you do. And whenever you're actually out real world mission, you get the call to do this. You're kind of worried, like. I know that he should technically be on my left. Is he going to be in the exact position that I think he's going to be in? Yeah. Are we a little bit different, a little bit off? Yeah, so that, and that's exactly that. And, um, but we just kind of had to roll with it. We had no other choices. We just had to fight and fight hard with you know, other members of different regiments. But we did that. And that, that, that tour continued to be like, full on. I think we lost 14% casualties within the first two and a half weeks that we were there. So we were getting hit hard and you know, people were, were, were you know, becoming casualties quite often and frequent. And um, yeah, the, the Battle of Danny Boys started actually, um, it was the 14th of May, 2004. And it was around about 14, 30 hours. And I was out on a vehicle checkpoint and it was blistering, blistering heat. Mm-hmm. And I was told by I was told by my vehicle commander that stop what I'm doing, so collapse the vehicle checkpoint, and get my the men under my command. So I was a lance corporal at this time at 23 to stop what I was doing and get back into our armoured fighting vehicle because we we're in these warriors, um, which are an infantry armoured fighting vehicle. So um, yeah, I mean, we mounted up into the vehicle. I put on the headset, the internal comms to speak to my commander um and he said look there's been an incident two british soldiers have been hit in an ambush and they are pretty serious casualties one's potentially going to bleed out so we are kind of now on a rescue mission mm-hmm. and uh yeah we started to go down route six and route six is a really how many are with you in the vehicle how many are under your command in the vehicle me plus two because okay. we were struggling for manpower at that point as well. I mean, man, we were spread because we had lost a lot. We weren't getting our battlefield casualty replacements quick enough. Um, so we were thin on the ground. I mean, yeah, me plus two in the back, 
which normally carries eight. So yeah, really thin. And um, and these guys. And that's were, scary were, as fuck by itself. Just being out with just three people in an area like that. It's already yeah. like you're apprehensive because if something goes down, you just got you three. That's fucking scary just on its own. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, and like I think it was like two and a half to three weeks prior to Danny Boy, I was hit hard, and uh, two eighty-four Soviet Union missiles come straight through our vehicle and caused all sorts of damage in the back, and um, and that was yeah. I mean, that was a that gave you a, a pretty severe concussion whenever that happened, right? I mean, yeah, well, my my hair was all burnt off. I was riddled with shrapnel. My good, um, the guy who was opposite me, a New Zealand lad, he had his nose kind of ripped off, and and um, Irving, the other guy, the LMG Minami gunner, had like really bad um, shrapnel damage to his leg, and he was like losing a lot of blood. And then the vehicle started to fill up with diesel because it hit the diesel tank, which is in the back. So I started to feel wet feet and I thought it was blood initially, but it was diesel filling up. So, but the scariest thing for that was our armor was now penetrable and that's what scared me. So I knew that we weren't invincible in the back of these armored vehicles because things can get through because hence two and a half weeks prior to that. It's already happened to you. It's already happened. And we took a lot of casualties and actually Johnson Bahari, Victoria Cross was the driver of my vehicle who then, you know, after many of his actions, he then went on to be awarded the Victoria Cross. And you know, so for our American listeners that might not know, because we have a lot of civilians too, Victoria Cross is the equivalent of the Medal of Honor. It's the highest award for valor yeah. that England has. So he saved my life. And then many months later, I actually saved his life. I dragged him out of a vehicle that he'd been hit um, not too far away from an RPG, a direct hit. And it kind of, Oh, he was in a bad way, but me plus one other guy. Um, I mean, it was just pretty crazy, actually. It was the whole the whole town was lit up. It was full on war fighting, and um, I got out of the vehicle and pulled him out. But I'm digressing anyway because we want to talk about you know the Battle of Danny Boy. So going back to that 14th of May, we were in a vehicle. We were going down Route Six, which was a main supply route from Bajra to Baghdad. And um, it's a very vulnerable route because it's only one way in and one way out. So we knew it's kind of, you know, it's a risky road to be on. But we had our main effort to go and extract these two soldiers who were injured. And um, I reckon maybe like 15 minutes into the journey, we got hit. And I've been, by this point, I've been hit pretty hard by all sorts of rooftop militia, you know, from the windows, from the doorways, from the alleyways. This was different. This was overwhelming, um, just super violent. I knew it was different because we came to a grinding halt and the armoured vehicle, which is 33 tonne, was shaking all over the place with the amount of ammunition that was it was getting hit by. And, um, you know, being in the back of that vehicle, knowing what happened to me three, you know, maybe three weeks, two and a half weeks prior, I had all sorts of emotion and I think the biggest being fear because, but I also know that fear is very contagious and I had to get a grip of it because Mm. I was a leader and a commander still at a young age at 23. So I really had to kind of, you know, acknowledge the fear because it's, you know, you should do that, but also control it. It's a big thing and don't let it overwhelm you because like I said, it's contagious and you know, you've got, you've got soldiers looking at you to, to make some big decisions. 
And I and think that that's that. a perfect spot. My favorite quote about courage is courage is not the absence of fear, but moving forward despite fear. And I think mm. that's a perfect illustration. And to people who I've talked to plenty of military folks who said, oh, I wasn't scared of this or that. Shut the fuck up. Yes, you were. Like you were scared and it's okay to admit it. I think that that's how we move forward and have these guttural reaction do what's needed. Because if you don't have that fear that you're about to lose your life, it can cripple you, like legitimately cripple you. 100% agree with that. Totally agree with that. And when I do, I do quite a lot of uh, speaking engagements. And I say, you know, people who turn around and say, yeah, they're not, they're not scared. is just like, yeah, they're just full of shit. And there was something drastically wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you were, you know, when you were fighting for your life, you, you would do everything to survive that. And your body goes through all sorts of emotions. And I was no different. I was in this vehicle. Um, it was getting hit hard. The gunner and commander were doing their thing. They were trying to identify where the stronghold was. They did that. They started to return fire. And we've got 30 millimeter Raden on our vehicles and 762 chain guns. So there's a lot of noise going off. And, you know, it was a, a two-way engagement now. And, but I knew not to get down my commander's throat straight away on the radio because I've got to allow him his time appreciation for him to do his thing because I knew that everyone else was going to be on the radio asking for a sit rep, asking for updates on what's going on. So I left him. And it now, I've heard, about- you, I've heard you tell that story before. Do you think that if you hadn't been in all those other firefights at that moment, if that was your first real deep being taken charge, that you would have fucked that up and things could have went drastically different? if you would have known to not be quiet and let things kind of develop? No, I think we're educated on that a lot. You know, we've got to, we call it a cigar moment, a pause Mm. two, three, chill, allow the situation to kind of happen. And then we can then dictate that situation. So I call it a cigar breather moment that he is now engaged in a firefight. I can't see what's going on because I'm in the back of this armored vehicle. It's boiling point in there. There's no aircon. There's no cold water. There's only a small um, window on the back door, but with grit and condensation, you can't see fuck all out of it. So you've just got to do your moment. Allow that to, to happen. I knew that there was an engagement happening. And then when there was a moment, I then asked him, Stick, what's happening? He said, listen, Woody, there's a stronghold. 10 to 15 militia fighter are dug in. They're dug in trenches. And I was like, that's different straight away because normally we're in the city fighting right um and i said okay and he said listen we're still engaging wait out so he's basically told me to wait and then i then told the boys in the back because they can't hear what's going on because it's only me what has the headset on Mm -hmm. so i relayed the information to the guys in the back and said look this is happening and they were like okay cool no problem and then a few minutes later he was like woody prepare you and your men to dismount this vehicle and go and launch a counterattack on that stronghold. And I was like, fucking hell, that's a punchy command. Jesus and I was like, Christ. yeah, I was like, shit, you know, there's only three of us, but <laughs> that's reason- a punchy command. What a, what a way to phrase it. God. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, yeah. So I, I was like, right. Okay. Roger that. Um, uh, then I needed to ask some questions. So I said, look, what's their weapon variants and it was ak-47s pkms a traditional middle eastern weaponry rpgs to name but a few um i started to kind of do my deductions on that we had our armored fighting vehicle yes we were outnumbered 
Um, but we were professional soldiers and I like to think we were a lot better than, than our enemies. So we, we, we had a chance. I mean, we, we had to believe that. And as a commander, I did believe that we would have a chance. And um, I said to him, I said, right, stick, the boys have been briefed. And um, what I would like to do is get out of the vehicle and, and go and try and go into some cover. So at least I won't be going out disorientated and blind because I never knew where the enemy were because I was in the back of this vehicle. I knew I was going to be like, um, it was going to be a demand for me when I got out and the bright lights of, you know, of the sun and the desert, it was, it was going to be hard for me to adjust. So I just needed to, I wanted to go to a position where I could then do my own estimate and have my own visual of that trench and where it is and what I then think I could do at that point. So he said, right, there is, when you, when the door opens to the left to 11 o'clock of this door, there's like a dried out irrigation ditch that will give you cover from view and fire and then you can make an estimate from there we'll give you a rapid fire mm-hmm. and give you enough time to get the enemy's head down for you to, to get out and, and get into there and i was like right boys we're good to go stand by and by example i was going to go first and, and leave that armored um our armored vehicle. Now, was that a cognitive decision or an instinctual decision for you to be first out? I think I've got a responsibility to to lead my men by example. I've always been brought up that way, and you know, tactically, we can you know we can argue tactics all day long because there's no there is no clear definition of how other people would have done it different. And if someone had done it different, maybe they wouldn't be here today. So I've done something right, and I chose to go first. I chose to inspire my men and lead them, you know, by example. And I, I believed in that. And um, I said to them, look, we're good to go. You give me a mini H hour. So it was like five, four, and then the door starts to open because it's on a hydraulic system. So when that door opens, it's quickly ra- it's pretty rapid, but it's such a heavy door. You have to rely on the um, hydraulics. And that door went open. And I remember blinking into like the flickering of pure light. And I was like, what? And then put my boots on the on the desert floor and looked up and I seen exactly where I needed to be and I just ran hard, fast and aggressive to this dried out um, irrigation ditch and dived down on in prone position, looked to my left and seen the bravest of other two lads following me, big Fijian lad and um, and Rushi. I they come in. We had a bit of a laugh in that because it's a nervous laugh. You know what it's like when you're in them wild. (laughs) Like, I can't believe we're fucking doing this right now. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, can you hear this? And I mean, it (laughs) was going off at this point. It was flat out. So I was like, okay, now let's have a little check. So we checked ourselves to make sure none of us were hit because the adrenaline. I mean, I I say to a lot of people, it's hard to describe. I call call it an out-of-body experience, this adrenaline, because it's a drug like, no other it's an endorphin like i've never experienced before you know if i'd been hit and this is this is this has been proven many times that many soldiers do get hit but don't realize in the moment Mm -hmm. because they are so overwhelmed by this adrenaline that it's pretty crazy yeah and uh we checked ourselves We, we there was no blood and we were good to go and i said well i need to go and have a look where this position was and i remember crawling up peering over this this like bun line where this where we were in this ditch and um i was like fucking hell that's a big shout 120 meters away 
you know, trench warfare now. It's going to be like full on CQB close quarter battles. And I was like, fuck, now this is going to be wild. But I had to maintain belief, really. So I said to the boys, you know, I've seen this. There's a lot of them. Um, I, I sort Was of the 15 a, number accurate? It was 28. Jesus Christ. So 20, 20 were, were, were killed and eight were taken as, uh, sorry, nine were taken as POW, 29. So it was a, it was a big attack, a big pre-planned attack on us. And um, yeah, I kind of was doing my thing. And then randomly out of like nowhere, another two soldiers joined us. And there was another commander who was a more senior commander than what, than what I was. Um, and another, another just a normal private soldier had joined. So there was now five of us, which honestly gives me a massive boost. Because yeah. now it's like a section. It's a section attack. You know, we've got a section and we've got fire support from our armoured vehicles, which now we had two warrior fighting vehicles really punching a lot of ammunition into them, that trench system. So all of a sudden, we are fully in the game now. I mean, I would never have gone there and say to the lads that we haven't got a chance. I was always upbeat. I always believed and we could achieve the unachievable. Because a lot of people even now think how and what you achieve was kind of unachievable, but you did it. It's, it's like mad, really. So the, the other commander, he did his thing. He does, did his evaluation. And then we agreed that we we're going to move as two teams. Me and my men, and then him plus one, because we were different platoons, but obviously the same company. Mm-hmm. So I just said to him, right, we're good to go. We're going to go straight down the middle. We weren't going to go right flanking because we never knew what was in, out in the flank. We weren't going to go left flanking because we were too close to our armoured vehicles. And, you know, blue on blue was a big thing. So we was like, we're not going to risk it. And uh, we're just going to go straight up the middle, straight down the killing area, and just just let, let's have it. And um, He's like, right, happy days. <laughs> and I, I said to the boys, right, stand by, we're, we're off and we're, we're going to go. And fucking, yeah, we just got up and started you, I, Is that, were you still out of body where you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this? And I know it's hard to, like, this many years now to kind of look back and remember exactly yeah. what it was like. But I can see, like, even when we're talking, like, you're looking off to the right or looking off to the left, and it's almost like you can still picture it very vividly in your head because I'm sure it's something that you've replayed thousands of times do you think of it as like I do when you're looking at it are you looking at it through your eyes or above like watching yourself do it from above I'm there yeah I feel it I smell it you know I can yeah I I know exactly how I felt on you know the, the adrenaline that I was going through the look on the other lads' faces and and yeah, it's just the heat, everything about that day, the noise, the mm-hmm. noise was it was horrendous, like so loud, and it was just like stand by, we're 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 going. It was like going over the top, Second right. World War type stuff. It really was, and it was me plus my other two guys, um, went up bounded forward and straight away as soon as we went up and kind of exposed ourselves that was it it was a two-way range and when i say like they say effective enemy fire is when rounds are landing in and around your feet or you're taking casualties and mm-hmm. we were fucking ineffective enemy fire at this point it was like fucking the bees were buzzing 
all over you. Yeah. And it was like in and around your feet. And I was thinking, how the fuck are we not even taking the casualty yet? Just move. And then the other two guys and bounded forward, leapfrog does, engaged. We started then getting closer and closer and closer. And like 50 yards away. Then all of a sudden we're 70 yards away. And now I can start to see some of the militia fighter leave. They started to withdraw. So wow. I knew that we had the upper hand. We had and that probably hand. gives you like a fuck yes, let's go. Yeah. We were good to go. We were like, we're, yeah, keep the aggression. Yeah. Keep, keep the battle rhythm, you know, and we just keep punching forward. And um, we were getting close and I could now start to hear them communicate. There was a lot of them moving around in this position. And um, we were just about to go in and kind of clear it. And the kind of last down position that we were in, we, we, we have a word of command and it's called pairs, pairs, pairs. And you just go and you break down into pairs and you just go straight in and roll everything up and clear everything that's in your way. And all of a sudden, as pairs, pairs, pairs were just about to be commanded, they threw their weapons down like and surrendered. And, you know, when, and I say this to, and I've said it in many of the press releases that I've done and some of the interviews on TV that I've done, when you're fighting for your life, you do anything to survive. You're in survival mode. And when you have to make a split-second decision under so, well, extreme circumstances, sometimes we get it wrong. But in this case, in this instance, we actually never got it wrong. It was we seize fire, stop fire, and switch fire. And, and now... That is, I, was, I, and then, I it can't was, even imagine. It was carnage, if I'm honest. They said in the newspapers, it was textbook. Fucking, it was no textbook about it. It was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of like um, trauma all over the place. Now, like there was militia fighters in half. There was body parts. There was, you, you name it, I've seen it. And I was like 23 as well. Like I've just stopped on this main trench position, trying to figure out what to, what to do, if I'm honest, because there was weaponry everywhere. There was militia who were alive, so I was trying to segregate the, the dead from the alive and weapons everywhere and trying to get the weapons off them to unload and make safe because I was, I was really worried that they were going to grab a right. weapon and, and have an opportunity and, and spray us. So I had all this going through my head. And then, we, then depth, another position, started firing at us. So now we've gone into the trench with them. So we are like fully on arms distance away in the trench with these militia fighters and with like loads of dead bodies everywhere. It's like, this is pretty carnage. I try to take a pause, like a little cigar moment, sort it out. And um, we managed to kind of take control of the situation. We, we done what we had with like um, the shamags we put around their, their eyes just so they couldn't see. And it was kind of um, the element of surprise, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we, we were going through. And um, we we're going through like the POW stage where you disarm, disorientate and maintain the shock of capture. So that's what we were doing at this point. And then I remember just like once the control of that was done in this main position, I remember um, my sergeant major turned up and was like, Woody, fucking hell, what's going on here? And I was like, oh, fucking, I don't know, but I couldn't even remember really because I was just in the days. And he said, look, is the battlefield clear? And I really wanted to say at this point it was, not because I was a coward, it's because I was lucky to be alive and I didn't want to mm -hmm. go through the same again. But because of my integrity and my values and what I stand for as a soldier, I was like, 
Sarich not put it. I saw militia fighters fall back. There is doc, there's pockets of enemy another 100 metres beyond this position. And he's like, right, okay, put a fresh magazine on. You and I are going to go and do a clearance patrol. And I was like, ah, fucking hell. But to be honest, <laughs> if I was going to go and do a clearance patrol, it was with my sergeant major because he was one of the most inspirational legends and leaders of men I've ever worked with. What a yeah. guy. And he was by example. And we went up, we started pepper potting, um, probably got 50 metres, 80 metres, and then I saw a movement on the right-hand side and a militia fighter stood up with his AK-47. I shouted, target right. And before I even got right out of my mouth, my sergeant major was all over him. You know, put a number of um, rounds into his midriff and dropped him. Target down, eliminated, move. And then I moved forward and, and, and militia fired sort of come out of a, an irrigation but with his RPG on just about to fire an RPG off at us and I just like put a number of rounds into his chest cavity and also a couple of into his throats and I remember because it was so close it, this was like 10 metres away from me Jesus I remember him choking and the noise that he was making to try and gain breath um, but I didn't have any time to think I just bounded forward and um, and I said to my sergeant major look so we're really vulnerable because there's so many of British soldiers now on the real position where the main trench position was. We should be going back there because we've got a lot of cover there. And he said, yeah, you're right. So I, um, I then started to fall back with my sergeant major and I saw from like this corner of my eye movement and I looked and I brung my weapon up to bear and it was two more militia fighters stood up and I was like, just about to engage and they threw the weapon systems down and that was it. We then we had to go in and go through the whole um, arrest and restraint and um, take them as POWs. We took them back to the main position and that was the first time that I'd sat down and drunk some water. So I talked through that kind of battle in about 20 minutes, but it actually took us about three hours from start to finish. Oh. It, was, um, it was punchy, yeah, it was a long day. And I sat down, I started drinking some water and um, the sergeant major come up to me and said, Woody, we need to get prepared to go and collect these dead bodies and load them up into the vehicles. And I was like, what? That can't be right. I knew that call was fucked up. Yeah. I knew it was crazy because normally we allow them dead in situ uh, because by you know, Muslim law, they have to be buried in mm -hmm. 48 hours. So I was like, why are, we, why are we taking these back? That's fucking, that's, that's, that's messy. You know, I've taken another human's life, regardless if they're enemy forces, is, is a demand anyway, especially from such close quarters. To then go back and lift the person's body up that you've taken, it's, it was fucking crazy, if I'm honest. It wasn't good. But we'd done it. We had to do it. So we spent the next kind of 40 minutes lifting these bodies or putting... And you're already up. exhausted too. Like you've yeah, got battle, like yeah, the we'll... physical and emotional toll that that takes on you and then have to go and put... I mean, legitimately dead weight onto a vehicle. Like, yeah. I don't know how you guys did that, like, physically. Oh, it was hard. I think, you know, especially when you're up and down with emotion and adrenaline as well. One minute you're up, one minute you're down, and it's like, oh. But we did this, right? And um, we loaded them onto the vehicles. It was a real, it was a, it was a demanding task. And something that really played on my, um, in, in, on my headspace as well later on in life. Mm -hmm couldn't shake a lot of the things that I'd smelt and seen and it was plain habit with my headspace but 
at that point we did it you know a good friend of mine was like being violently sick next to me and I was like right you just sit there and you just kind of get some fluids on I need to we need to get these these bodies sorted out and they were in a fucking bad way because they were you know you can only imagine what 30 millimeter does to your body you know mm. I mean you're pink mist you're all over the place so we were kind of having to do this anyway we loaded them onto the vehicles and went back to our fob um, which was Abinagi and by the time we got back there, there was so much um, commotion. There was everyone was waiting for us to get back, and I, we got back to the camp. I, I dismounted from the vehicle that I was in, and then my regimental sergeant major was at the gates waiting for us. And he said, "Look, Woody, you need to go and take the bodies, um, the vehicles, up to the regimental aid post. The doctor's going to be there waiting for you to unload them." So I said, "Yeah, okay, no worries, Roger that." took them up to the regiment laid post. The doctor was there, the body bags were laid out and he said, right, get the doors open, we'll start unloading the bodies. And I said to him, look, these are in a pretty bad way. You can smell it from outside the armored vehicle, you know, feces, um, man fat, clots of blood that I've never even believed that could be in a human being. I mean, these were like horrendous. And he's like, I get it, let's get this door open. And remember I said about the doors being on the hydraulic system. Mm -hmm. So I said to one of the boys, right, get the door open. And he's gone to press the button. Nothing. Dead. And I was like, I can't even believe this day. It's just about to get even worse than what it already is. So what that meant was someone had to climb through the turret, go into the back and climb over these bodies and open it manually. So we played paper, scissors, stones to see who would do that. And my driver lost. And um, he put like his shemag on his nose and... Uh, he said, look, can you talk me through, you know, reassure me when I'm climbing through the back? And I was like, yeah, of course I will. So we were talking to him, reassuring him, and oh, it was just a horrible thing. So we started manually doing it, and it takes a while to hang crank it open. And um, he must have got it to the, you know, maybe you can squeeze out of the door sideways, where he, I heard loads of screaming. And I was like, what's happening now? So, and he's left the vehicle and sprinted past me shouting, he's alive, he's alive. And I was like, what? So I've looked in the back of the vehicle and due to the nature of his wounds, he wasn't alive. But what he was, he was set up bolt right with his eyes open. So it mm -hmm. must have freaked him out in the back and he come like running past and it was just a nightmare. But that event, that single event alone ruined his life through trauma and mental health. He is still in a really serious situation now um, because of that event. And um, oh, it's, it, was, it was, yeah, a crazy day. Then, you know, we had to then wash down the vehicles and then the next day we were back out in town fighting again and I was still finding lumps of flesh and, and clots and all sorts about three weeks after. Jeez. And the smell, you know, the smell was horrendous. Um, you know, that just doesn't go away. Right. I opened up the, the door the next day, and, and you know what the flies are like when 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 you was in Fallujah. The flies are everywhere, mm -hmm. and these flies were just riddled in the back of this vehicle because of the stench and the smell. It just it was it was honking. If I'm honest, it was brutal. But we had to go back in that vehicle the next day and do our thing. It was um. It was, a, it was a demand. The tour was... Did was you guys very have big. anybody that talked to you, like said, hey, what you just saw was horrific, like if you need help or anything like that? Because I remember at our time, like it wasn't that way. No. And I think if anything I could have changed, 
about our time. Obviously, the violence is one, but the results of the violence, like not having somebody there to talk to you and like kind of talk you down and then getting right back on the horse the next day is really insane. Yeah, well, we were saying no one spoke about it. I mean, everyone just kind of pretended that that event never happened. And mm -hmm. um, we didn't have any trauma risk management people who were educated or done any courses like that. It was just a case of, right, we're, we're, we're back out into town fighting again tomorrow. We never really assessed Just go be a soldier again. Yeah, let's go again. And um, yeah, it was, it was just a bit of a mess, really. But we never, I never knew any different. And if I had my time again, then absolutely we need to decompress after some big situations like that because, you know, that's just not normal. Right. To see that and to do things like that is not normal. That is a huge traumatic event. And, um, but we just kind of sh shook it off and was like, okay, well, we go again tomorrow. And we were back out there scrapping. Um, and that, yeah, the tour was lively. And I got back and to be honest, I have my own problems if I'm, if I'm blatantly honest, it wasn't all plain sailing. I had a, you know, a demand in my headspace and with a lot of things I couldn't shake. And my temper was horrendous. I was just a little bit, well, I was changed. I went there, a, a young boy, I left my son who was three weeks old. I came back and he was six months old at this point And I couldn't understand where the time had gone. Mm. I didn't know how to be a father because I'd left when he was such a, a, a young baby. And that was a demand for me. And, I took that out of my wife. I kind of blamed her for a lot of things that I'd done and not, that I'd experienced out there for, for no reason. It, I was just, wasn't a very nice person. And then, um, I mean, we kind of had to, we had our own challenges in the household. And, uh, and then a few years later, these fucking crazy allegations were made against us five years after the battle of Danny boy. And, um, I got. I was on my commando course to earn my green beret in 2009, and I had about 20 missed calls on my phone when I got back from doing one of the uh, commando tests. Which is always unsettling as shit. Yeah, well, I knew because Lucy would never phone me. My wife would never phone me when I'm on courses. She knows I get my head down. I've just and it's an arduous course. I mean, the commando course to earn my green beret was nails. It's it's a hard course, and um, I knew there was something wrong. But I thought it was one of the kids. So I phoned up and said, that's what's happening. She said, look, I've just had a letter delivered and I've opened it and it says that there's now going to be a public inquiry regarding the Battle of Danny Boy and the allegations against you and my fellow soldiers is murder, mutilation and mistreatment. And I was like, are you joking me? Like, is it definitely my name? And they were like, yeah, it's definitely your name. And this is after and you had already been awarded the military cross by the Queen, like herself. Yeah. No, and the thing is... and this goes to show I don't really even talk about that anymore, even though it was kind of one of the highest awards for, for gallantry and, and, and valor. I don't kind of, my medal was in my sock drawer, mm. you know, cause Winston Churchill once said a medal shines or a medal glitters, but it also casts a shadow. And one day I'll get it back out. I mean, I wear it on occasions on remembrance day or, you know, if someone asked me to bring them along and then I'll do that, but they're not, on showing my house or anything like that because there's a lot of history with them and you know it, in time I, I probably will get them back out and and be proud of them i am proud i mean that day alone was incredible i went to buckingham palace with my with my mum and dad and and my wife and you know 
when I went up to the Queen, she pinned my medal on my chest and she said she rarely give, gives these medals out for, for bravery and gallantry. And what you've done is exceptional. When you wear them, you wear them with pride. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I'm now up against the wall with these allegations. And I didn't have any support from our government. I never had any support from the MOD, the Ministry of Defence. I was on my own. I just thought I have fought for my country. I'll give everything for my country. I was awarded for gallantry for what I did. And then all of a sudden, my back is now against the wall with, this, with these allegations all over the press, all over the news. Reporters now wanting to speak to me and my brother. Um, you know, they were just getting hounded and I, had, I didn't have any support. No I can't imagine the rage, like the righteous indignation, like that was flowing through your body whenever your wife is telling you what this letter said. You must have just yeah. been outside of your mind. I couldn't believe it. I honestly couldn't believe it. And then I phoned my adjutant up, who was, we were in Germany at this point. So I phoned my adjutant up, who was, that was my regiment were in Germany. I was in the UK on this course. So I phoned my adjutant up and he said, yeah, this is right. And uh, we need to speak to you when you get back. And I said, it's an absolute joke. This is the ultimate betrayal. How can this even come out? And I wasn't even prepared for it. You know, so you had so- no inclination at all that this was coming? Nothing? No, not until it came out and it all went out in public. And then that was it. That was the start of a crazy roller coaster. I was writing statements after statements after statements after statements. I was going into London, speaking to solicitors. I was, um, yeah, I was all over the place, if I'm honest. It was you know, in the news and the press. I was getting phone calls from friends and family asking what they've read in the newspapers. Is it true? Was I a murderer? Was I mutilating people? Was God. I mistreating? And I was like, what? So I was justifying myself time and time again. And it didn't only affect me, you know, it affected my family. My son was at school and then all of a sudden his father is now a murderer. How do you deal with that? Because I certainly never knew how to deal with it. But I just had to remain true to myself and my values. I did what I did. And the change, like the change from MC after your name in every single publication to charges of murder, like the change in public perception of you switched in an instant, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, I was battling to clear my name. I thought I should be even battling to clear my name. We've done nothing wrong. We were ambushed. We counted this. You know, we achieved what a lot of people said was unachievable. We, We did something which was overly heroic and then all of a sudden now these are innocent farmers who we've taken from from the farming field took them back alive lined them up against the wall and then massacred them i mean shit like that just doesn't happen so how has this got traction well i'll tell you why it got traction because there was a lawyer in the uk who was a very famous lawyer called phil shiner he was gold standard he was sought after he was an award winner and he done a lot of good stuff right this there was a british case um which British soldiers were found guilty, and rightly so, because they did breach and conducted war crimes. And they were found guilty of that. But Phil Shiner got to the bottom of it, and it was called a Bar Mitzvah trial. And he got to the bottom of this, and soldiers, British soldiers were found guilty because sometimes soldiers get it wrong. We're like any other business out there. Sometimes we get it wrong, but 90% we do get it right. And this was not another Bar Mitzvah trial. This was completely different. But because he had so much credibility, what he was doing is he was paying agents in Iraq bungs of money to come up with these allegations. And they just got traction. But the government were like, our government were like, oh, my God, he did so well with the Bar Mutsa. We need to trust him because there could be something here for this. Mm. 
And I was like, this is shit, because what evidence have they got? Look at all the weapon systems that we recovered from the battlefield, you know? And what they did as well is... Um, and not to mention the initial calls on the radio. Like, yeah, they, they had all the that This was a, it was a joke. It was a joke from start to finish, but it ended up being 31 million pounds of taxpayers' money which was spent on this, and 10 years it took for the verdict to come out. But it was just, it was a question of my code of honor and that's what my book you know my book is called double cross which is betrayal and it was a um you know a code of honor and a complete betrayal because that's what it was for me you know i've done and and my other soldiers who were with me had done remarkable to then having to go through this it just was unfair um but we did go through it and um like phil shiner he had you know he I had a lot of money, a lot of big reputation, and um, he'd done a lot of damage, a lot of damage. Anyway, they, another lawyer company in, in the UK, a huge lawyer firm, were also involved. They shredded a document, right? They shredded a document that stated they were all militia fighters and the regiment that they were linked to, but they shredded that. And they they said in the court that it was um, it was human error, mm. and I was like, it was fuck, it was human error because if that had been if that had been then brought forward, all of this would have been stopped, and you wouldn't have been getting your money like you have been. It's all corrupt, man. It was right. all horrible people which were just bloodthirsty, shyster lawyers who were just on the hunt for money. But what they were doing, they were ruining people's lives. They were shattering people's careers. They fueled PTSD. They broke up marriages. They they done so much damage, and um, and it's so unbelievable. I was telling my co-host like when I was telling about interviewing you, I was like, this story, like the things that I've read, it doesn't even seem. If you wrote a Hollywood script about it, I don't think it would go through because people would say this is too unrealistic. Like yeah. what, what you went through, what you did, what you're recognized for. Cause I imagine the military cross is a lot like a lot of our higher level valor awards. The investigations in order to get those are pretty intensive as well. They don't just fucking, the queen doesn't just hand out awards because Brian said that he did a good job. Exactly. I never even knew they did awards when I was 23 years old. I, I did it for my brothers on the left and right of me. I didn't, I didn't, didn't even know about awards. So that's how naive I was. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was, you know, I was read out for, for the military, the military cross. And I was like, wow, that's just incredible. But yeah, I mean, it was another, it was a secondary battle that I never knew how to deal with and never knew how to fight because I wasn't educated. I wasn't prepared for it. And um, it really, it was, it was hard on me and my family. So but once that, so once the solicitor says that all these charges are false, and I, I heard the statement, he was very clear in saying these are the root of this is all lies. We yeah. spent all this money. What's your emotion whenever you hear that verdict? Is it relief? Is it anger? Is it a little bit of everything all wrapped into one? Yeah, I think it's everything all wrapped into one. Um, it has, it's, as crazy as this sounds, I would actually like to go for a beer with Phil Shiner mm. and ask him what his motive was because I think it's greed and it probably would have been. But, you know, where did it all start going wrong for him? Because he was very good. He wasn't all bad, trust me. He was mm. very, very good at one point. Where did his moral compass 
start to become a backbearing? That's what I would like to ask him because I, I would just like to know that. But he hasn't given us an apology. He hasn't gone down for any sort of... Um, libel or anything? Tre treason or anything like that, which, it, I mean, he hasn't gone down for any libel. I mean, he's a clever man. He's put his... Yeah, he declared himself bankrupt and... And like you said, the this the um, the judge who um, basically read this, the the verdict and the summary out was you know it was reckless speculation, deliberate deliberate lies, and um, yeah, and just pure hostility, and it was just unfair. Did it affect and, um, your patriotism? All the charges and like how long it took for you to get through everything? Nah. No. 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 Uh, yeah, uh, there's there's too much history in my family to to be bitter with the the country. Look, listen, I'm a big believer in lessons learned. You know, I I I then put pen to paper, and the book done incredibly well. It exceeded my expectations. It went mad in the UK. It went into the Sunday Times bestseller number three. Michelle Obama was number one, but I couldn't shift her off the number one spot. <laughs> but, but you know, I can I can roll with that. But it really did cause a lot of waves and um and even the reviews sorry you're good the reviews um have been brilliant i mean i've been overwhelmed by everyone's support and 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 that's what it's all about and that's why i remain patriotic because you know yes the government failed and the mod had a lot of questions that they need to be answered but sometimes we all make, all make mistakes and as long as they are rectified and we can then put in statute of limitation or we can put in new laws which will stop this from happening it has to because the soldier is under so much pressure anyway they're young men who are in extreme positions that needs to be taken on board so when i was in, you know, in the dock and i was being cross-examined by people who have no idea what it's like to be in a battlefield that frustrated me mm. you know i wanted a senior officer to stand up and say let me put this into context because i was trying to put it into context but also answering all of these crazy questions that they were, were asking me. And actually they stripped me of all my values. They stripped everything one by one. They put my citation that I was written up for, for the military cross, not to congratulate me, but to tear me to pieces. And I just was like, you've got no idea what it's like. You've got no credibility to me. You haven't done a yard in my shoes, but then yet again, you're going to shred me on everything that I've done for this country. You're a joke. And, um, you know, the bottom line is, it was all we um, we were all cleared of everything which I knew anyway, and um, like I said, I put pen to paper. The book done really well, and also it was optioned straight away um, to be put into production. Mm -hmm. But I also knew that only three percent of real life narratives go to screen. But mine was commissioned not so long ago, and it's going to be um, yeah. I can't give too much away because... I'll, Who do you I'll, want to play I'll, you? Um, I think it's got to be a British actor with due respect. Cumberbatch, right? It's got to be Cumberbatch. We'll see. Because we'll I saw... I, t I t called my wife in here earlier before we started interviewing. I was like, look at this fucking dude's hair, man. Like, this is perfect hair. <laughs> Not anymore, look. Yeah, look. you shaved it all off. You shaved, shaved it all it off. off. But I actually shaved it off because a good friend of mine and a fellow veteran, um, he stood on a an IED in 2012 and lost both legs above above the knee and uh, I've got uh, he's a close brother to mine to me and I love him to pieces and he's had a tough time of it and then he was diagnosed with cancer not too long ago he went through chemo 
unfortunately he wasn't cleared and now he's gone into the for the hardest fight of his life today so he's gone back into hospital today to try and and to 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 beat this but it's it's on him at the moment and it's and it's spreading into his spleen so I wanted to do something for him so I said I'll sh- you know my hair is a big thing to me and it's I'm, I'm very well known for having my hair and and I said look I'll put it on the line if I can hit my target of five thousand pounds my hair's coming off within 36 hours I hit my target but I'm also running three marathons in three days for Jay starting this Friday my first marathon is so that's the least I can do for someone who's given everything and and had life-changing injuries through his service that's the least I can do and he's a brother in arms and you know, and I hope you know, he gets what he deserves and he can beat this. So if somebody wanted to donate to that cause, I saw that you had a GoFundMe. Where would they find that out? It's called uh, Running for Jay. So go on to GoFundMe and just put Running for Jay. And the actual the hashtag is um, Miles for Jay. That's what I'm doing on my social media. So if you want to follow this journey and, um, and see me in a pretty bad way, uh, on a, in a physical state, then you can follow me on all platforms. It's Brian Wood MC or at Brian Wood MC on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'll be giving live updates and, and doing my thing on there. So one last question for you. What's yeah. next for you as somebody who's gone through both the heroic side and then public scrutiny. Now you have a book that has gained a lot of notoriety. Soon there'll be a movie. What impact do you want to have just in the world? I want to inspire. I'm very, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for one for mental health, but two, you know, I, I like to kind of inspire on things can go, come good. If you keep moving forward, if you keep attacking, if you keep doing the right thing and stay in true to your values, it will come good. And this is a little bit about my backstory. And this is how I overcome adversity. And I've been traveling the world at the moment speaking. I went out to New York. I was on then the you know, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth II speaking on their famous ships. And I've been into London with big corporate business talking about decision making in, in extreme situations and, and, and circumstances. And I really enjoy that. And it's a little bit of relief for me because I don't talk about what I've been through every day. So when I do, it's a little bit of therapy. So mm-hmm. it's great. And um, you know, helping educate ch- children whether it's coaching, whether it's doing some leadership sessions or anything. It's just I love giving back and I'm a believer and we all should do a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, so I think another book maybe um, in, on the horizon. I think I'm busy, very busy speaking at the moment in a number of different venues. Um, I'm going to be consulting during the movie, the, the film, which is great. And um, I'm also going to be doing another project which will see me go back out to Iraq and Danny boy. Wow. Yeah. If you need for the movie, if you need a fat American who's out of shape and kind of washed up, (laughs) (laughs) feel free to give me a call. Brian, thank you so much for joining us and tell us your story. Go get his book, watch the movie whenever it comes out. Thanks for joining us, man. So many parts of that story that like actually reading his book that he left out, we could have gone on forever, but sometimes I feel like as an interviewer, you kind of have to know like what the parameters are and like how long somebody can actually speak about that. I feel like he could have told stories for hours about what was going on. It is by far the most interesting story that I've heard in the last five or six years, easily. I was blown away whenever he was telling me what happened to him. 
so impressive, the people that we have out there. Right. It's crazy. That's what's crazy to me because obviously there's movies and there's books, so a lot of people know, but there's so many countless stories that are just never told. So it's great that he was able to share that with our listeners. Yeah. Thanks and one aspect about it is that I think that because we come from a very American perspective and I know that like just from people reaching out on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, we have soldiers constantly who serve in Canada or serve in the UK that listen to the show. Everything that we talk about, we come at it from a very American centralist view where everything that we talk about, it's usually this American unit did this, this American did that. I had never, just completely honest, even heard of the Battle of Danny Boy until I came across this guy's story. Never. Had, had, had you guys? No, I hadn't heard of it. Nope, me neither. Three versus 28 and more showed up reinforcements in a ditch where you are getting out where you can't even see and having to rush. Just an unbelievable story. Crazy part that he didn't even mention. He is the first, he is the first British soldier since World War II to give his men the command fixed bayonets. He didn't that's even mention easy. that. That's why. Like, that's how insane his story is. You just heard it for 50-something minutes. And he didn't even mention the part where he had to look his soldiers in the eye and say, fix bayonets. Crazy. That, to me, is the most baffling part of his story. You hear what he did, what he went through, then what he went through after, five years after he came back, where they're trying to charge him with war crimes and shit like that, that he eventually was cleared of. And he doesn't even talk about the fixed bayonets. Just an unbelievable story mm-hmm. all around. I want to thank our good friends at Dave.com for that last segment. Uh, if you're like me, you're not always paying attention to your bank account. And the moment that you see that you're going to be overdrawn, it's just a little bit too late. So end up spending $37 on a cup of coffee thanks to the bank fees. Now they're introducing Dave app. Put an end to overdraft fees for good. Dave is the number one budgeting app in America because it saves you overdraft fees, tells you about upcoming bills, and can advance you $75 from your next paycheck with no credit check and no interest. Get the Dave app for just $1 per month. That's $12 a year, which is way less expensive than an overdraft fee, and you never have to pay one ever again. Dave will help you budget for your upcoming expenses, text you for uh, spending too much, and if you need fast cash, advance you $75 in just 90 seconds. Mark Cuban is an investor in the Dave app, and he used to get crushed before he was uber rich, where he doesn't have to worry about that anymore. Three million people uh, already use the Dave app and save $1,000 a year in overdraft fees. Go to dave.com slash ZBT. It really helps the show if you let them know that you heard about them here. So download the Dave app and never pay an overdraft fee again. It's immediately savings. Go to now dot, go now to dave.com slash ZBT. Spelled just like it sounds, D-A-V-E, dave.com slash ZBT. The round number five comes to us from friend of the program, retired Army Lieutenant General Bob Caslin, who is the newest president of the University of South Carolina, and he has now invited his students to PT with him 14 times. The last invitation was tweeted out this week from his account where he welcomed students to meet him at 0600 and attached a sheet of the workout with the hashtag PresidentPT, of course. The tweet read, tomorrow it's Strom at 6 a.m., Nice. He transitioned to civilian time there. Mm-hmm. Workout attached. All welcome. Even first timers. Hashtag U of SC excellence. I love this. Yeah, I think it's nice. He, I included, he included a little photo of the workout and it's uh, it's like five little sets of different things. And I thought it was cute. Yeah, it's a pretty standard army type workout. 
and it, it works. But I, I love this because I think when you think school presidents at most universities, there's just these individuals that sit up in their ivory tower, and maybe you know their name. I, I would venture to say at big state schools, you could probably walk around and ask 100 people who's the president of the school, and most wouldn't even know it. And then he is doing this in such a genuine manner. It's not like, hey, you better be there for PT. It's like, hey, I'm going to be there if you want to join. Yeah. Cool. And it's a great way to kind of get your pulse on what's going on at the school. Because I got to imagine in a relaxed setting like this, he gets people to kind of open up, especially if he's done it 14 times. So he shows he's committed to it. And it's not just a, a one-off like, hey, I used to be in the Army. So people probably go multiple times and can really voice their concerns about anything that's going on at the you university. You think he makes them wear glow belts? Ooh. If it's dark out, I bet you he recommends it, but <laughs> oh doesn't require it. Oh, my God. Camelbacks? All that Hopefully. Stuff your I think that he would have his mm-hmm. folks out there being hydrated, no doubt about it. Well, I had a couple issues with some of his workout Let's hear it. Things. Uh, ten Turkish get-ups? Have you seen how hot Turkish men are? I'd rather do a Turkish get-down. <laughs> Russian twists? Uh, don't they twist enough already in the news? That we see on social media platforms. <laughs> uh. <laughs> squats? Uh, yeah, I think I'll do a diddly of those, sir. <clears throat> diddly squats. Decline Yikes. sit-ups? Uh, yeah, I usually do. <gasps> 50 mountain climbers? The last time I did that many of those was on spring break in the Himalayas. <laughs> hey Do you guys think that we should try his workouts? Because if he's no. going to post them online, we'd try them out. Oh, my God. Yes. Maybe. Oh. I'm into it. You're here next week, right? Yeah, I'm here because some of them seem like it seems like a pretty good thing. Set what? Set what? No, set one. You're <laughs> going to have Stairway to Heavens, 40 push-ups on top. Set two is 10 pull-ups, 10 dips, 15 burpees, 25 decline sit-ups. Set three is 20 kettlebell swings. And then you have Russian get-ups and the aerobic machine that you're going to do. 20 more squats, 50 mountain climbers, 25 Russian twists. 10 T push-ups and set five is 50 sit-ups. That's a pretty good little workout. Couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Couldn't probably not it. me either. No. <laughs> stick to rucking. It was fun to say that we point. would, though. Felt good yeah. for a second. I felt good. It definitely huh. did. It definitely did. Look All right, let's move into save rounds, alibis. Kate, we'll start with you. All right. Uh, again. Follow us on YouTube. Bren's, producer Bren's been putting up a lot of our videos, pretty much all of the videos we've ever done. And there's some really good oldies in there, too, that I really love. So check out the Zero Block 30 on YouTube. A lot of fun stuff there. Uh, I'm seeing a trainer at the gym. When this episode Ooh. comes out Friday, I will be at the gym in the morning early for me. Zero eight hundred. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what are you uh, going to what are you going to tell the fellow or lady that's training you? Like, what the, are you going to tell them your goals are to be hot? Like, make, can Hell you make yeah. me hot? Have you already met that person? <laughs> Do you guys have a workout that'll change my face? <laughs> Is that a thing? Have you met this person? No, but okay. she seems cool. I, I, like, stalked her out online. So, I don't know. Maybe I'll get hot. Hopefully, or I'll show up twice and quit. Hopefully, she has some good training background. Because yeah. I feel like so many times at these gyms, you could just go to some weekend course, and they give you a certificate, and it says, okay, you can train people. Oh, now. no. This place, I, like looked deep i was like okay, taking good. my time and this place is super legit i think that we should always know unless it's haircuts kate does her Due research yeah. very deep oh true, fuck yeah i true. really really do i like found I, her personal <laughs> shit and like wow <laughs> Whoa. great kids really sweet Yikes. whoa anyway uh i also real quick sending good vibes i was getting ready to fall asleep last night and I follow a lot of military stuff on Twitter, and I start seeing this thing. 80, 
ambulances rushing by they're calling for blood and nurses and doctors 80 paratroopers have been seriously hurt and i'm like oh my god this is fucking terrible mm. i'm like camp shelby down in mississippi and i'm like holy shit and all this hearsay unofficial news started coming out about it mm. that i was like oh my god but it turns out um nearly two dozen paratroopers were injured while conducting a training exercise in mississippi last night um the troops were jumping from a c-130 when the wind blew them away from the intended drop zone so several of the 89 paratroopers landed in a large group of pine trees and some were taken to the hospital others had to be rescued after they were tangled in the trees but no casualties um no, no one killed thank god but that's, some people definitely good. hurt so send just send a good vibes their way um quick recovery good stuff I just have two real quick. I was watching Forrest Gump the other night, and I just happened to turn it on at the scene when he's given the speech at the Vietnam protest. And it got me thinking, have we had any major protests like that for the war in Iraq or Afghanistan to that scale? Hmm. No. No, right? There's no Maybe, but I don't – not that I can remember off the top of my head. So that was going to be my question. Why do you think that those protests happen for Vietnam to that scale and they haven't happened for – the wars that we're currently involved and still involved in because the draft made people care. The draft brought people into it who brought everyone in America into it, essentially, instead Mm -hmm. of just this small contingent now who volunteers. And I also think protests happen in different ways. Now, then you didn't have social media where you can sure uh, where you can like bombard people constantly and be talking about it. If you were going to get your voice heard, you had to do it in person back in the day. Interesting. Well, that just made me think. And then the last thing, there was another, Instance of a veteran who no longer had any family or, or, or friends around, and he passed away. And a plea went out on social media about his Tons funeral. Of people showed up, and thousands. Yeah, and it just—it's nice. just such a nice gesture that you see continuously happen for vets without family and friends when all these strangers show up to honor that that person yeah. and, and their service. And I think it's amidst all of the, the chaos in our, our world right now, it really is a, a bright spot. Indeed it is. Mine is I want to give a huge, huge shout-out. And I normally don't like to get too political, but to Elizabeth Warren, because Jacob Wall, like if you don't know Jacob well, Wall, he is a huge troll on the Internet, uh, right-wing theorist, troll, conspiracy theory, just a complete psycho that got kicked off of twitter deplatformed and shit like that he has a a marine who is supposed to be very decorated 24 years old and a bodybuilder who elizabeth warren uh jacob wool is going to say later today in a press conference had sex with him after she met him on an online prostitution site and i just want to say if elizabeth warren is pulling that kind of dick good on her yeah. Even though she's <laughs> married, that is not going to be something that dissuades people. I think people will be like, dang, good for old Elizabeth Warren taking some time away from the trail to get it in the tail. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. This this guy, Jacob Wall, he often is like, I have a bombshell news coming out. And he hosts like press conferences in his friends' driveways. And like two reporters show up at the last one, a trash truck interrupted it. And they're like, hold on, we got to take the recycling out. And it's always something he like builds it up as that. And it's never what it seems. So right. I'm, it's happening today, this afternoon, in somebody's driveway in Arlington. <laughs> he has, oh he, it's his own driveway. Oh, it's his own really? driveway. He has oh, two like, moves. He did the same thing with uh, Buttigieg, where he said that Buttigieg was involved with some sexual relationships and cheated on his husband. So he broke that news. He broke the news that uh, Harris, Senator Harris, wasn't 
actually born in America, so they tried birtherism again on, on Senator Harris. It's just the same old tropes. But again, if Elizabeth Warren is dicking down this Marine, good on her, sound the retreat.